So tonight what we're going to do is we'll talk about uh, Purim, uh, and it's uh, Purim in a very general sense. More specifically, we're going to talk about the, uh, the Megillah, and with regards to our analysis of the Megillah, what we're going to do is we're going to really explore the four main characters in the Megillah, uh, Mordechai and Esther, and Haman and Achashverosh. And we're going to see that there's a particular perspective which runs a common denominator, which the Megillah conveys about all four of them. They have very different reactions to uh, to things or very different ways of approaching things, but something which unifies them. And I think it's one of the lessons of the Megillah. And I think it's one of the lessons really overall of Purim. It really uh, uh, hits to the heart of what Purim is about in the Avoda what we're trying to accomplish in a spiritual sense on, uh, on Purim. Besides listening to the Megillah, Mishvach Manos, Matanos Avyonim, but in terms of really what how uh, Purim is supposed to be one of the holiest days, if not the holiest day that we have on the Jewish calendar, so to understand what we're trying to accomplish and whatnot, so we really have to understand uh, what's going on over here. So I'm going to begin with a little bit of an introduction, uh, just so that we'll uh, know what uh, we're talking about in terms of what, what we're focusing on when we explore Achashverosh, Haman, Mordechai, and Esther. Uh, the topic of shame becoming real and embracing our challenges is something which is really a universal thing. It's a universal topic which requires its own, probably even more than a shear, a, a, a series of shirim in order to fully develop and fully understand and appreciate the uh, the idea. We're just going to touch upon it in in brief, so that we'll uh, know enough to uh, to jump into the Megillah and see the uh, the themes as they play out in the in uh, uh, in the Megillah itself, in the characters of the Megillah. So what happens is is that um, we live in a society, and this is something which is universal. It's really cross cultural, but it 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 permeates any uh, any from society. Certainly, is that there are certain ideal or model people which we sort of strive to be like, to emulate, to possess the characteristics which, which they have. So as Americans, so we all know, if we talk about what's going to be the ideal person uh, from American standards, so certainly that's going to include characteristics such as wealth, beauty, public acclaim, power, and popularity. Those are all ideals which people are striving for. That's what it means to make it in this world is really to possess those things. When we get into uh, to Judaism, when we get into uh, certainly into Orthodox Judaism, so then there's going to be things having to do with piety and achievements in learning and uh, family status and stuff such as uh, such as that. So that also is something which is shaduchim. So that's also something which is an ideal which people strive for, and that becomes the model by which everybody measures and everybody is going to uh, to determine whether or not they've made it they've been successful or not. And having those traits, having those characteristics is seen as being successful. And then those who do not have all of those traits or have weaknesses or challenges in any one of those areas. So that is perceived as a weakness, as a flaw and potentially even a failure on the part of the person. So taking an example, somebody who struggles in learning, a, a young man who struggles in learning, so they're going to see themselves as, as an abject failure as far as their life is concerned because they just can't, uh, they can't achieve, they can't, uh, they can't do. And therefore, since we know that failure is certainly an uncomfortable feeling, so in what failure, the, the overall emotion, which those, that type of thinking is going to generate that perspective, uh, is going to uh, generate is one of unworthiness, one of weakness, and uh, what uh, at, in its worst manifestation, it generates a sense of shame. And shame is, on all accounts, shame is one of the most powerful feelings of in, in the world, and people will do almost anything in order to avoid experiencing shame. And undoubtedly, everybody here has experienced at some point, they remember uh, something which happened even as a child where they felt shamed. And that's one of those memories which get which gets seared onto the hard drive, which we don't forget because it's such a powerful experience that it's something which is very difficult to uh, to escape. And it's something which very much shapes our thinking and our, and our perspective on things. And the reason why shame is such a powerful emotion 
is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu wired us for connection. At the very beginning of the Torah, so the Pasuk says, So a person is supposed to, this is in the second parak, so this is almost as early in the Torah as you could get, but it says that a person is going to abandon his mother and father, he's going to find a spouse, and with that, they will go ahead and uh, the husband and wife will, will become one. So in the ideal, what we're talking about is, is that a person is supposed to go from dveikas, from connection, attachment with parents. That doesn't, that attachment and connection doesn't end until they reattach with their spouse. So throughout one's lifetime, one is supposed to be attached, one is supposed to be connected. And what shame does is it makes us feel unworthy of connection. And when we feel that we're unworthy of connection, so that creates this this, uh, disconnect. And that's something which is a very painful, as we said, a very painful experience to, uh, to undergo. And therefore, people very often, I don't even have to, you know, to, to take a show of hands because I know that I will see them all. But everybody has thoughts and feelings and perspectives about things, which if only people were to be aware of them. So we're absolutely certain that people would not be interested in being friends with us. People would disconnect with us. They wouldn't want to be with us anymore. And we see in society now with, uh, with woke or whatever the, uh, the terminology is, is that to express a belief about something which is considered to be unaccepted so that people are shamed, businesses are shamed, and people are shamed as a result of that. And in order to, uh, to avoid that sense of shame, that powerful uh, emotion of shame, so people will go very much go out of their way to pretend that they don't have those feelings. They try and ignore those parts of the past, which uh, which uh, uh, which they think would drive people away. And this is the uh, the, uh, the 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 life which we live, spending much of our time trying to uh, avoid shame. In contrast to somebody who. Uh, whose life is shaped by a fear of being shamed. So the term that I use on the opposite end of that spectrum is for a person to be real. When I say real, I'm using it with a capital R. So that's to be real in terms of who they are. And this is a person who's real and somebody who is, a, somebody who is authentic. And they are not afraid of their thoughts. They're not afraid of their past. They're not afraid of their challenges and their weaknesses because they understand at the very core of who they are that those challenges and those weaknesses weaknesses which they have are what make them special and unique. And that is what defines them as as, as different from everybody else. If everybody were to be that ideal person possessing the wealth and the beauty and the status and the power and the privilege and all of that, so everybody would look exactly the same, everybody would think exactly the same, and there'd be no way to distinguish one person from another. I think about, for those who are familiar with the terminology, I think about when Achashverosh in the story was trying to find a wife and he has this beauty pageant. So what I imagine was going on, because it says, that all of the women who prepared to be with Achashverosh, they went through the same beauty treatment. So I imagine it in my head, I imagine that all of the women walked out looking like geisha girls. So characteristic of geisha girls is they look exactly the same. So you can't tell the difference between geisha girl one, five, 10, 100, or 1,000, because they all dress and they all do their makeup exactly the same way. So if you have a 1,000 women who look exactly the same, how are you going to choose which one you're going to marry? It's impossible because they all look exactly the same. So what what made Esther special and unique was the fact that she didn't subscribe to that. She presented herself, in a sense, as is. And there was something special and charming about her. It was a chain about her because she was real, she was authentic, and she was honest as far as who she was. And that's why Chazal say that she was so authentic and she was so real within herself that every nation uh, in the, in Ahasuerus' kingdom looked at her and thought she must be one of us. She must be from this neighborhood. She must be from that neighborhood. She must be from that country or this country, whatever it was. Everybody identified with her because there is a chain, there is a charm which arises when a person is real and authentic with themselves and they're not putting up some sort of facade. As we'll see, Esther actually goes through a, through a transformation, but that's what we're going to try and focus our attention on, this idea of how some people are driven by shame, how the shame in their lives, which they're embarrassed about and they're uh, humiliated over, how that drives them to behave. 
how there are some people who are very real and very authentic, and that's what drives and motivates them, and that's what gets them to, uh, to be who they are. And then for the rest of us, who are in the middle over here, we're not on the extremes of the uh, of the spectrum, but we find ourselves in the middle. So what we are striving for is to go from a person who is generic or a person who is inauthentic to become a person who is more real and a person who is more authentic. And that, as we will see, hopefully we'll, we will see by the time we're done, that that's the avoda, that's what we're trying to accomplish over the day of Purim, is to become more real about ourselves. And as we'll see, spoiler alert, so we're going to use Esther, ultimately is going to be the model that we are going to try and emulate in this, uh, in this regard. Okay, so let's go. We're going to go step by step. We'll do Haman, then we're going to do Mordechai. Sorry, we're going to do Haman, then Achashverosh, then Mordechai, and then Esther, and then we'll summarize it, and uh, hopefully we'll be done regular time. Okay, so Haman, we know he is the uh, the the Russia of the story. Obviously, he's the Russia who stands out in the in the story. So Chazal tell us that Haman was the son of a barber and bath attendant. That's what his father's profession was, which were not particularly prestigious jobs back in the time of the uh, uh, of the Persian Empire, and in addition to that, Haman was extremely impoverished. He was so poor that at some point earlier in his life, uh, much before the, uh, the the Megillah begins, he actually sold himself as a slave to Mordechai because he didn't even have money for bread. And he was actually referred to, I don't know if this is when he was a child, when he was a teenager, but Chazal say that he was actually referred to derogatively as, quote, the slave who was sold for, for loaves of bread. So this was a nickname that Haman carried with him. And this is something which obviously was very shameful to him. He was ashamed of his, uh, his, uh, his very weak background, the fact that he did not come from a prestigious family, the fact that he didn't have any money, that he was on the lowest end of the totem pole in terms of status in this world. And this is something which haunted him throughout his life. We know where, in the story where his life ends, but this is something which haunted him. And therefore he was madly driven in order to counter that, that he was going to collect for himself an enormous amount of wealth. This is something he prided himself in. He was going to consolidate as much power as he possibly could, rising to second in command to Achashverosh. And he was going to collect as much honor as he could. So honor, wealth, and power, all of those were done to counter the shame that he bore from his childhood, where he had no power because he was from a low-status family. He had no money. He had to sell himself as a slave. And he had no uh, no, uh, no, uh, no uh, 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 honor whatsoever as somebody who comes from a profession which is on the lower end of what was considered to be uh, pre prestigious. And as a result of this, the, the response that Haman had to the shame which he bore was to be the ultimate narcissist. Everything was about him. And the, the entire story, as we we're going to see, was all about him and his power, his wealth, and his, in, his, in his honor. And the origin of that term narcissist, for those who remember their Greek mythology back from, uh, from high school, probably from, from high school. So this is a person who ended up seeing, he was a very uh, handsome young man, and he ended up seeing his reflection in the water and was so taken by his beautiful reflection that he fell in love looking at himself, he ended up dying there staring at himself. So that's why the term narcissist refers to like a self-love that he had. And that is, that was Haman's approach to everything. And therefore, we see that when Haman is first introduced in the third parak, so the Pasuk says, Gidal Haman, that the king went ahead and elevated him, he promoted Haman, elevated him, and he set his seat above all of the officers who were there with him. So we have over here is Haman is reaching the pinnacle of power. So he's not quite the king. The king, you have to, to be the king, you have to be the king. But just short of the king, he's somebody who uh, was able to accumulate an immense, immense amount of power as second in command. And as if being, let's just call him the prime minister, wasn't enough power for him. We know that when he suggested to Achashverosh, I think we need to have a day of hate in order to annihilate the, uh, the Jewish people. And we're going to take care of the Jewish problem. Another one of those people was, uh, was focused on the, uh, the Jewish problem. So Achashverosh gave him even more power. 
because we know the Pasuk says, that he went ahead and he gave his signet ring, which is the ring necessary in order to issue decrees. He handed over that power to go ahead and make any decrees he wanted. That was given over to Haman. So here you have this narcissist who is Haman, who's infatuated with power and with the honor and all of that. And Achashverosh gave him carte blanche to go ahead and you do what you want. You have all the power. And you have the authority to do to this nation, meaning the Jewish people, whatever you want. So that is the ultimate power. So Haman has now achieved exactly what he wanted as he's fleeing from what he considered his embarrassing childhood and his background and his poverty and all of those things, he's now reached the highest level that he possibly could. He succeeded. And on top of that, the Pasuk says that, that all of the servants of the king, so they all had to bow. We know this is where Mordechai gets himself in trouble, but all of the people had to go, all the officers had to bow to Haman. So as if being prime minister, second in command wasn't enough, but on top of that, he, he expected everybody was going to bow down to him. And Chazal say there's different opinions, but according to one opinion, Haman made himself into a god. He considered himself to be a deity. So what does that mean that Haman thought of himself as a god? If you think about it, it's a little bit strange. If Achashverosh had decided he was a god or when Paro thinks that he's a god, so he's the highest command, highest in command in the largest empire in the world, in the known inhabited world at that time. So they may have this God complex where they go ahead and they're going to uh, think that they're bigger than everybody and they're more powerful than everybody else and therefore they become a God. But Haman knew that he was only second in command. So in what way did Haman consider himself to be a God? It's a little weird that he would be a God, but not quite God as far as Ahasuerus. Why would God be second in command to somebody higher than, than himself? So I think the answer to that is, is that the relationship that we have with a, a God, when we think about a God, the, the primary, the dominant feature which we have when we think about it is the requirement of submission. If there's a higher being than yourself, above yourself, that requires respect to that higher being, and that requires complete submission to that. That's what we know. When Klai Yisro was offered the Torah, they say, Nasevenishma. So we're going to do whatever you, God, tell us to do. We are submitting wholeheartedly, 100%, and we are going to do whatever it is that you tell us to do. And we, we don't even need to hear ahead of time what's involved. We are all in. So Haman's God complex wasn't that he actually thought himself uh, as a God in the classic sense of a God, even in the sense of an idolatrous God, but it was God-like in the sense that I am so powerful and I expect complete submission by everybody to my authority and to my honor and to uh, the, 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 the power which I wield. So in that regard, he considered himself to be a God. The downfall of every tyrant, if you go through uh, all of history, you have to do a history of, of tyrants. So what happens is, is they become so consumed with their power and anybody who challenges or questions their power, they kill or they torture or whatever it is that they're going to do, that they end up surrounded by yes men. Because you can't disagree with him, because if you disagree with him, you're going, to, you're going to be killed. And they become so consumed with their thoughts that they, they begin to believe sincerely that every thought that they have is actually true. There's nobody there to challenge their thoughts, to question their thoughts, to say, hey, maybe you should look at it from this perspective and not that perspective. I think you're out of your mind as far as this is concerned. You should do it the opposite way. So a tyrant never hears that. And therefore, they become consumed with themselves. Once again, going back to that narcissistic uh, characteristic. And that's what ultimately happened with, uh, with, uh, with Haman, that he expected the entire nation is going to honor and respect him, and they would be completely submissive to him. That's, it's in that regard that he thought of himself as a god. Now, the problem with uh, one's perception of themselves, of power in honor and respect, being fed from other people, when you're, when, when you're reliant on other people. So as soon as that oxygen is cut off, as soon as somebody does not uh, 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 comply with that, so then they completely lose it. And that's what happens with tyrants when somebody doesn't do what they expect is that they, they, they go berserk. So we know the Megillah tells us that Esther calls a, her first party. And after that first party where nothing really happens, so Haman walks out and he's all full of himself even more, as if he could get larger than himself, but he comes more full of himself at that point. 
because he realizes that not only do the people below me all think that I'm all powerful and that I'm great, but even on the royal level, the queen has invited me to a private party with just her, Achashverosh, and myself. Those are the only attendees at the party. How much greater can I be than to be invited to this private intimate dinner between the king and the queen and myself? So that certainly is demonstrative of the fact that I've reached the highest level of power, which is achievable by somebody short of the king himself. And then he walks out of the party and there's Mordechai and Mordechai doesn't bow down to him. And we know he loses it. He becomes, in, he becomes infuriated by what's going on over there. And he, before he makes any decisions, we know the Megillah says he called together all of his family and he tells the family, if you remember the Psukim, Haman, Haman goes out and tells his family as if they didn't know all about his wealth, his family, his prestige, his power, and his honor. That's what he recounts to his family. He makes them sit down in review. These are my bank accounts, and these are how many children I have, and this is the power which I possess. And all of that was to reiterate, to remind himself and everybody else about how great he is, because he is the ultimate, uh, the, the, the ultimate uh, narcissist. And then after he tells everybody about all the things which he's accomplished, all things which he's achieved and how great he is, he makes the most amazing statement, which is characteristic of the narcissist, but the most amazing statement where he says, the Jose and in Shoveli, none of this is worth anything to me. This is all meaningless and worthless to me. As long as I see Mordechai sitting there not bowing down to me, so all of this is worthless. Because from his perspective, from the narcissist's perspective, from Haman's perspective, if he doesn't have 100% honor, then none of it is worth anything. And although he was second in command, the most powerful man, short of Ahasuerus, in 127 different provinces, and everyone in all of those provinces would bow down to him, one fella doesn't bow down to him, and that's enough for him to say, none of this is worthwhile to me whatsoever. And that's what happens when a person becomes infatuated with themselves and, and their power. And this is, uh, this is what Haman is all about. It's all about him. All he sees is his achievements, his success, and his power. And that's, uh, that's it, because all of that was to counter what he experienced, the shame he had from his background, his family background and his impoverished background and all of that. And therefore that the, the, the taunt, which he used to hear the quote slave who was sold for loaves of bread. So that would ring in his ears and in his mind. And that's why he was completely not real. He was completely artificial. He made himself artificially pumping himself with all of that power and wealth. And ultimately that became his demise. That became his downfall. That is Adkan Haman. Now we move on to Achashverosh. So Achashverosh also struggled in terms of shame. But Achashverosh's shame came from a different place and his response to shame also led him into a different place. And whereas Haman, his response to shame was to become assertive and aggressive and power hungry, Achashverosh, his response to shame, as we're going to see, was to become passive and meek and not display or exercise all of his power and control. In this, the, the Megillah hints this to us at the very beginning of the Megillah, when it says, It wasn't the time of the days of Achashverosh. Who ruled from Hodu to Kush. And on the word Hamolech, so Rashi already says, Chazal say, and Rashi says that the word Molech tells us that he ruled. And the reason why that needs to be emphasized is because Achashverosh was not born into royalty. Vashti was born a royal. She had royal blood. He did not. Achashverosh had a lot of wealth. According to at least one opinion of Chazal, he actually bought his way into the throne. But he was fully aware of the fact that he did not possess royal blood. And he spends the entire time afraid of his shadow, that somebody would realize that here he is, Achashverosh is the position of king, and he's completely unworthy and unqualified to serve in that role. In being that, he was ashamed, not so much of his, of his past, but he was ashamed of his present to be discovered, that people would realize that he's not truly worthy of being royal. So he spends the entire Megillah running away from anything which could draw attention to what he perceived as his weak, uh, his weak um, 
his weak uh, uh, grasp of the throne and his weak leadership. So this is what happens. So what has happened at the beginning? So the first thing that the Megillah tells us about him, although it may be in the third year of his reign, but he says, what are you going to do in order to show I am the king and I'm super powerful? So he has a party. So he has to display to everybody his, in, his massive wealth in the opulence in something which only a king can do. The lifestyles of the rich and famous. He's going to put all of that on display for all the people to see because that's a way of being able to show everybody superficially and externally, I am a powerful king because look what kind of party I could go ahead and I could put together. And his thinking is, in his brain, he's thinking, perhaps if they see how wealthy I am, they'll not, they won't notice how unworthy I am for the throne. And therefore, he goes ahead and everything you could possibly want there. If you want fleshigs, there's fleshigs. If you want milchigs, there's milchigs. If you want sushi, there's sushi, whatever. If you want vegetarian, vegan, whatever you want to go ahead and eat. So everything was there with all of the hechsherim. You could get haimish, you could get nayan haimish, you could get the achal of Yisrael. Everything was there. And the Pasuk says that as far as the drinking of the wine was concerned, lasos kirson ish vaish, that he provided wine according to each person's specification. And this was also done not as a magnanimous gesture on his part to show that he's a giving, caring king, but this was he wanted to make sure that everybody who walked out of the party, all of the reviews that would show up online about the party would be five stars. So he was going to do everything he could to make sure that he got 100% five stars reviews so that they will inevitably think of him as worthy of the crown, as somebody who's worthy to th- sit on the throne, even though in his own mind, he was haunted by the fact that since he wasn't born royalty, therefore he's considered himself to really be unworthy of the crown and unworthy to be sitting on that, uh, that throne. And when you're aware of this, about what, what uh, uh, the, the, uh, the soft spot that Ahasuerus had in the fear that he had in the shame that he bore, so this now gives us insight into two things which happened to him in the in the very first parak of the Megillah. So we know that the uh, the uh, uh, main event of the first parak is when Achashverosh invites Vashti into the party, and she refuses. And the pasuk just says Vitamein Vashti that Vashti refused to come. Vitamein Hamalka Vashti she refused to come to the party, and Achashverosh's response to that was Vayiksof Hamelch Maod Baravo that the king became enraged and his wrath burned inside of him. Now, any of the uh, the men on the thing here have experienced, at some point, your wife probably said no. Maybe in the past five minutes, she said no. But it's something which you've experienced at some point that your wife has said no. And if your wife said no, it doesn't necessarily, hopefully, it doesn't generate a, a response of rage and burning anger. And yet over here, she said no, and Ahasuerus blows his top. Why exactly did Ahasuerus get so angry, so enraged, just because she didn't want to show up to, uh, to the party? So Chazal tells us, the Gemara Megillah tells us that really what she said was she knew that he's self-conscious, that he's not worthy of the throne. And she didn't just say, you know what, I'm not interested in coming to the party. She said, you're a drunk. You, first of all, you can't hold your liquor. My father could drink a thousand times as much as you, and you drink a little bit of that, uh, that blue stuff, and already you're, uh, you're tipsy and you can't, uh, you can't handle it. But on top of that, that you can't do that, you're not even worthy to be the stable boy in my father's royal stables. This is a huge insult because you have the royal palace, somebody who's, the only people who are going to be working in the royal palace are people who are accomplished, who are, who are of a certain status to be able to be even a servant in that. And the lowest position that you can possibly have in the palace is to take care of the horses. And she was saying, you're not even royal enough to take care of my father's horses. So what she did was she zeroed in. She got into that soft spot, that weakness, which he had in his head of feeling unworthy of being royal. And she said, I know what royalty is because I was born into royalty. I saw my father, who was an emistika king, who was a real king. And you, you're nothing. And when he heard her highlighting the fact that he's completely unworthy to be the king, so we know when somebody goes ahead and nudges that area of shame in our lives, that's when we're going to get the most angry. And that's when we're going to have the strongest response to what's going on because they hit that sensitive spot inside of us. And when they hit that sensitive spot, the one that we're trying to protect, we're trying to shield everybody from being able to see. And as soon as somebody goes out and exposes that to the entire world, announces that to the entire world, that's why he blew his top. 
because that was the thing he was most protective of, his feeling of being unworthy for the throne. And she announced to everybody, you're indeed unworthy to be the throne. You can't even take care of the animals in, inside of my father's stables. And that's why he blew his top. So what happens after that? So again, Ahasuerus is afraid to make any decisions. If you look through the entire Megillah, pay attention to see if you could see where Ahasuerus made a completely independent decision on his own because he was afraid of the backlash which would occur. Because if you, once you make a decision, once you commit to make a decision, if somebody is unhappy, then they're gonna, you're going to receive criticism. And he was shielding himself from any criticism that he could, because any criticism would highlight the fact that he's un, that his perception that he's unworthy to sit on the throne, and therefore everything is in consultation or under the advice of others. Nothing is done on his own. Now we know that he decides he's going to consult with his wise men, his advisors, what should be done with Vashti. And the person who steps up and talks is Mamuchan, which is really Haman. Haman uses the exact same thing as Vashti did to also get into Ahasuerus' brain and to force him, not physically, but force him emotionally to go ahead and have Vashti killed. What does Haman say to Ahasuerus to make sure that Vashti is going to get killed? And how did that exploit his weakness? It exploited his weakness because he says, listen, Ahasuerus, if we don't go ahead and have a strong response to what's going on, to what Vashti just did by humiliating you, all of the women in the country, in all of these countries, in your entire empire, they're all going to be disrespectful to their husbands. Because they're going to say, if Vashti could do it, if she could be disrespectful, then we could also be disrespectful. And then you're going to have an entire kingdom of unhappy husbands. Now, when all those husbands are unhappy because their wives aren't listening to them, what are they going to think in their head? They're going to say, do you know why I'm having so much shalom bias issues? Do you know my, why my wife is giving me such a hard time? She's giving me such a hard time because Ahasuerus is a weak, uh, weak, soft noodle. He's a wet noodle. And he doesn't have a backbone at all to go ahead and stand up for himself. And all of our tsaras, the entire country is going to think our tsaras is because Ahasuerus, he's, he's not even royal. He shouldn't even be on the throne. He should not be wearing the crown in the first place. And that's why all of us are suffering. So Haman plays to the weakness of Ahasuerus and says, if you don't respond strongly, what's going to happen is everybody in the nation is going to suffer and they're going to point their finger at you. Do you want this to happen? Now, obviously, Ahasuerus, who's so protective of his reputation, cannot tolerate that to happen, that everybody would point at him. And therefore, this is something which is offensive. This is something which everybody is going to be impacted by and they're all going to blame you. And they all see you as somebody who's unworthy. And therefore, Ahasuerus has no choice but to go ahead and to, uh, to kill her. And he agrees to go ahead and, and, and kill her. So here we see Ahasuerus also is a person whose behavior in his thinking is motivated by his fear of shame, fear of being exposed, being unworthy for the throne and for the crown. And that is what drives him and motivates him throughout the, uh, the story. Now we get to Mordechai. Mordechai is all the way on the other end. Mordechai is a person who's real and authentic from the very beginning of the story. Nothing about Mordechai ever changes. He's genuine and real. And even when the rest of Klai Yisrael went ahead and uh, complained, blamed him for what was going on, they said to, uh, to Mordechai, Mordechai, because you didn't bow down to Haman, that's why Haman is enraged now at the Jewish people. And that's why there's a decree that we're all going to be annihilated. And it's all your fault, Mordechai. And Mordechai wasn't deterred by that. He did not allow that to change. He didn't allow public opinion or public perception to change his thoughts and his approach to things. And even after they said that, meaning after the first of Esther's party, he still refuses to go ahead and bow down to Haman, even after the, the decree has been issued. Because, like the Medrash says, that Mordechai declared to HaKadosh Baruch he says, you know perfectly well, HaKadosh Baruch that I'm not doing anything which I'm doing is not because I'm haughty, it's not because of anything about me, it's all about your honor. That everything which I'm doing is in your honor, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that was what motivated Mordechai, and he was not going to be swayed at all by public opinion, despite the fact, the backlash which he faced. And even when later on in the, in the Megillah, when the uh, Mordechai wants to communicate to Esther the fact that 
the Jews are in trouble and she needs to, uh, before he tells her that she needs to go into Achashverosh, so he shows up at the palace wearing sackcloth. And Esther hears this and she says, oh my gosh, this is such a violation of protocol. Everybody knows that you can't go into the royal palace. You can't enter this area wearing sackcloth. You have to wear Shabbos clothing. You have to wear your Yontav clothing. You should be wearing You should be wearing your strimal or something like that, your Vaisazakin. You can't be there wearing, uh, wearing sackcloth. And she sends a change of clothing to Mordechai. She says, listen, if you're going to be hanging out over here, you have to shteltsu. You have to comply with what's expected of everybody over here. And you're not doing that. You have to change. And the Pasuk says Mordechai wouldn't accept the clothing. He said, no, the time, the moment which we find ourselves in at this juncture in Jewish history. So Klai Yisrael is in Tzara, and therefore I need to go ahead and I need to wear sackcloth as a demonstration of the pain and the anguish which I'm experiencing at, at, at that time. And I'm not changing. I'm not changing for anybody, no way, no how. And on top of this, Mordechai, the uh, Chazal tell us that Mordechai at the beginning of the Purim story, Mordechai, he was a member of Sanhedrin, but he was in the number five position that the Sanhedrin would be seated according to prestige and the top positions, one, two, three, four, and then Mordechai. So that means that there were four members of Sanhedrin of higher status than Mordechai. And you would think, okay, he, he understands. He's a big Tamil Chacham. He's a member of Sanhedrin. He's a great uh, person. He's a great Tzaddik. But there's four people who are greater than him and they seemingly do not agree with his position. And therefore he should just submit and say, you know what, I'm going to uh, forego my, uh, my, my position. I'm going to defer to the senior member of Sanhedrin and I'll let them make choices rather than me. Mordechai wasn't even deterred by the fact that there were four members of Sanhedrin more senior than himself. He had his belief. He had his way of looking at things. And that is going to be the way he was going to, uh, he was going to conduct himself. So there's other things re- related to that, but that's the way Mordechai uh, presented himself and that's the way he conducted himself. He was real throughout the story from beginning to end. Now, the most intriguing character and the most interesting character is that of Esther, I think, is that of Esther. Because Esther is the character who actually went through a transformation over the course of the, uh, of the story. She's, she's really the, the heroine of the story. And the avoda of Purim is to try and emulate what she did in terms of being able to walk away from shame be able to become real and the process of become, becoming real, authentic and genuine means that one is going to have to embrace the circumstances of their life. So the first thing we know that, the, that Esther is somebody who is transformational, that she goes through a, a change over the course, that's, that's, a, that's taught us by the Megillah at the very outset when it introduces her. It says, So from the very beginning, we know Esther has two personas. She's Esther and she's Hadassah. And there's a machlokas, which was, which was the name on her passport and which was her nickname. But she has two different names which represent two different aspects of, of herself. And when it comes time for the beauty pageant, Mordechai tells her, you're not allowed to tell anybody you're Jewish, number one. And number two, you're not allowed to tell anybody at all that you descend from Shoal HaMelech, that you actually have royal blood inside of you. Do not tell them no matter what, no how. And she fully complies. Mordechai is instructing her and she accepts wholeheartedly. If this is what Mordechai is telling me to do, I'm going to follow his instructions because he is in charge. And the Pesach says explicitly, she didn't disclose anything about her background at all. Because Mordechai told her, don't tell. And if Mordechai says, don't tell, so she is going to comply with that because she's going to follow instructions. Now, to fully appreciate her transformation, we have to put her, her life in context. So the Megillah tells us that she was an orphan girl, not little orphan Annie, but she was an orphan girl. And Chazal say that from the wording of the Pasuk, that the moment of conception is when her father died. So her father wasn't even around when she was born and her mother died in childbirth. So here you have this poor girl, how sad it is that she she grew up without a mother or father meeting them even once, nothing about her, her, her parents whatsoever. And however, she ends up, her, her, her uncle, Achashver, uh, her uncle uh, Mordechai takes her in. According to Chazal, they actually married. But undoubtedly, uh, Esther would have been the top of her Beis Yaakov class. Whatever class she was in, undoubtedly she was the top because she was a Tzedekah. She was already in Nevia. She, she experienced prophecy, uh, Chazal tell us. And therefore, she was certainly 
the uh, the top of her class. So for a Beis Yaakov girl, imagine what it was like when, number one, she has to participate in Achashverosh's beauty pageant. And all the things which are involved in that is something which is horrific to, to her. She's separated from Mordechai. She can't be together with him. And she's stuck in the royal palace, which certainly there wasn't much morality which goes going on. It's not a good environment for a Beis Yaakov girl to, uh, to say the very least. And then uh, the worst thing that could possibly happen to her is Achashverosh chooses her to be the new queen. So you can imagine in the mind of a Beis Yaakov girl, a mind a girl who went to day school, K through 12, she went to Eretz Yisrael for a couple of years. She was a, 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 a madricha for her second year. She stayed a second year. Her In her mind, she's going to be marrying the top guy in Lakewood, the top guy in Brisk. This is what her life is going to be. And she's going to raise a family. And she all the good things which she's imagining and all the nachas she's going to have and all of that, this is what she was expecting. And all of a sudden she's chosen by Achashverosh to be the new queen. And it's not bad enough that she's married to this, 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 this uh, a guy, that she's married to somebody who's not Jewish, but she's married to the most immoral person that we could possibly imagine. It's like Donald Trump on steroids. Not a political statement at all, but imagine in terms of immorality. So we're going like that times 100. That's who she ends up being married to. What could be more horrific for a Basiakov girl than to be in her circumstance? Now, undoubtedly, when she's chosen to be the queen the night after the chasna, do you know what was going through her mind? I'll tell you exactly what was going through her mind the night after, the, I shouldn't say chasna, the night after the wedding, the royal wedding with, uh, with Achashverosh, undoubtedly she was singing Gam Zulatova. Gam Zulatova, Gam Zulatova. And she had no doubt whatsoever that this is going to be for the best. In the first day, where she has to show up at the uh, the royal uh, party celebrating their wedding. Again, she's humming to herself, Gamzulatova, Gamzulatova, Gamzulatova. Now imagine you're in her situation. You end up married to this immoral, disgusting, you know, excuse for a human being called Achashverosh. And how long are you going to be able to say Gamzulatova and keep the faith? It's a very hard thing to go ahead and, and, and do. And you imagine a week into it, undoubtedly our faith will begin to, to weaken. Because where's the tova ready? Akash uh, Baruch is going to do everything for good, Zolzain. But where's the tova ready? I'm waiting to see the goodness of this. I'm waiting to see the message. In the month into that, then where, where are you thinking? Where are your thoughts going? Undoubtedly, a month into it, a year into it, two years into it, at a certain point, Esther undoubtedly has to say to herself, I'm living the most miserable life I possibly can. I'm orphaned from, from, from birth never saw my parents. I thought I was on track to a good life. And then I end up married now to the king who's the most powerful man in, 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 in the entire inhabited world. There's no way I'm getting out of this. I'm stuck with this guy. How could life possibly be any worse? What have I done that I deserve this life, this terrible punishment of being stuck married to Achashverosh? Do you know how long she was married to Achashverosh? Before Haman's decree was issued? It's hard to pay attention because we read the Megillah so quickly. Five years. She's chosen queen in the seventh year of Achashverosh's reign. And the lottery which Haman has, choosing the date when to kill the Jewish people, is in the 12th year of Achashverosh's reign. Which means for five years, she's trying to sing to herself, Gamzulatova, but how long is that going to go when she's isolated by herself, not knowing where this tova is, not seeing any of that? Okay, then... Now we get to the transformation. We'll try and do it uh, quick. I apologize, but uh, we'll, we'll try and get it done. So Mordechai comes in and says, listen, Haman has issued this decree. You need to go into Ahasuerus and you need to plead for him. And she says in a generic type of way, in a way which is influenced by outside things, she says, how could I possibly go into Ahasuerus? Everybody knows, everybody in the kingdom knows that if you ever show up by Ahasuerus unannounced, you're going to die unless he stretches out his scepter. And I haven't been invited for more than 30 days. There's no way I could show up unannounced. I'm going to die. That will certainly get me killed. That's making me vulnerable. And there's no way that I could go and do that. And Mordechai sends back a message. He says, listen, the Jewish people are going to be saved no matter what. Again, Mordechai was the rock. He was not going to be deterred by anything. He knew that salvation was coming. He knew salvation was coming even before Haman rose to power different uh, shmuz for a different uh, time. But Mordechai knew, he says, Undoubtedly, there's going to be Yeshua for the Jewish people. The only question is, are you going to be the catalyst for this or not? In other words, 
are, are you going to be the one who's going to be the point of salvation for the Jewish people? Or are you just going to be something who, who, someone whose family is forgotten in the course of history because they didn't contribute what they were supposed to go ahead and do? And at that point, that clicks in Esther's mind. And she says, aha, this is the tova that I've been waiting for for the past five years. I now see what's going on over here. I now understand why I was chosen to be the queen, why I'm married to Achashverosh at this point, because the tova is now going to be the idea that I am going to be the one who's going to be able to save the, the Jewish people. And the transition is so dramatic when she realizes that she is going to be the one who's going to save the Jewish people, that she immediately becomes the leader. Up until this point, Mordechai told her everything to do, and she listened. Now she begins to give instructions. And she says, you're right. This is the tova. This is my purpose. This is why I am here. And therefore, you, Mordechai, I'm going to tell you what to do now. Go gather together all of the Jews and make sure that everybody fasts for three days. And Chazal say that the three days, amongst the three days that she was fasting, included Pesach meaning that nobody had in Shushan, they did not have a Pesach Seder that year. That was a Psach, that was a ruling which was given by Esther. That wasn't Mordechai's Psach, that was Esther's Psach. She began to take over. And because at this point, it wasn't simply that she accepted. When you say Gamzu Litova, sometimes what we think is, it's a circumstance which I'm not happy about, but I have no choice but to accept it. God isn't going to do something bad, so I'll accept it. I don't understand it. I don't want it. I wish it wasn't here, but I'm willing to accept it. That's already a mila. That's already a great level of bitachon, of faith and trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But Esther took it a step further. It wasn't simply that she accepted the fact that she was stuck married to Achashverosh. She now embraced it. She now said, this is my mission, and I'm going to do this proudly. And that's why after the three days of fasting, the next parak begins and says, that Esther went ahead and put on, it literally means she put on royalty, which is a strange construct. Really what it means to say is she put on royal clothing. She put on her queen garb, whatever her fanciest queen clothing. That's really what it should say. But the puzzle doesn't say garments. It just says she put on malchus. So Rashi says she put on royal garments. Then Rashi brings down that maybe what was going on is she, uh, she had Racha Kodesh. She had some nevuah at that time, which is referred to as malchus. But I think that the pshat over here is, is that when she put on, for five years, she's been wearing royal garments reluctantly. She had no choice. She accepted that this is the circumstance which God put her in. She, she couldn't fight it because it was what it was, but she accepted it only reluctantly. And it's not something that she was proud of. It's not something that she displayed. Like the rest of us, it's something that she wished away and she would hide from, and she didn't want to announce to the rest of the world. At this point, she now becomes real. She now becomes authentic. And part of being real and authentic and being genuine is being able to be vulnerable. And it's at this point she says, I'm going to put on the royal garments. I'm going to accept that this is my mission in life. And I'm going to embrace it strongly and proudly. And I'm going to go into Achashverosh and I'm going to plead on behalf of the Jewish people. In that moment where she embraced her circumstance and she allowed herself to be vulnerable, she's going to announce to everybody, I am a Jewish woman. I am from royal blood. This is who I am. That ability she had to go ahead and embrace that. Now, and she no longer carried any shame and she no longer was trying to run away from or escape or suppress who she was or, or the circumstance that she was in. At that point, there was a transformative moment where she now is in charge. She becomes the leader of the Jewish people, and she is the direct cause for how the salvation unfolds. Esther decides to have a party with Achashverosh and Haman. Mordechai didn't give her any answer. Mordechai didn't advise her to have that party. Mordechai didn't advise her to have two parties. And Mordechai didn't tell her, at the second party, go ahead and tell Achashverosh the fact that Haman is trying to kill your people. None of that came from Mordechai. All of that was Esther's doing because once she became real with a capital R and she became authentic, it became genuine and she was comfortable with herself and she was willing to embrace her circumstance, not merely accept her circumstance, but she was willing to embrace it. That empowered her now to tap into all of her potential and to be able to realize how great she was going to be and the contribution she was going to make for all time afterwards. Because now we all celebrate a Purim 
because of Esther's transformation from being somebody who was somewhat generic in somebody who was suppressing who she was for a period of time to now allowing herself to embrace her circumstance with all of the challenges which, uh, which she had. And that's the idea. That's what we're trying to celebrate on Purim is that what we're trying to accomplish is we're trying to replicate what, what, uh, what, um, what uh, 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 Esther did. And we know whether or not you drink a lot or not, but whatever Chazal say that one of the purposes of drinking, that we drink on Purim, one of the reasons is, is because our ability to suppress who we are, to be guarded in whatnot, is something which takes a lot of control over the mind. When one drinks, you lose those inhibitions. And when you lose those inhibitions, the real you has a greater chance of becoming exposed, becoming, becoming, uh, coming out into the open. And that's what we're ultimately trying to accomplish on Purim, is we're trying to tap in to our real selves, with a capital R, the real whoever, uh, insert your name there. And everybody here, again, because this is why Purim is, is the universal holiday for everybody. Everybody here has aspects of their life which they wish were different, which if they could change things, they would certainly change them about their background, about their current circumstance, about whatever it happens to be and things which we're not proud of and things which we don't want other people to know and things which, which we are shameful of. But those things which shame us, those are the impediments which get in the way of actually becoming our real selves and being able to accomplish the ultimate goal which HaKash Baruch Hu has in store for us. And we all have to figure out that, that path that Esther took to go to overcome that sense of shame, to realize that the challenges we have, the struggles which we have, the things in our life which we wish were differently, and if we had the control over, we would make them differently. But that is our way, that this is, this is a circumstance which HaKadosh Baruch Hu has chosen for us. And if we learn to embrace that, and we learn to be comfortable with that, and not worried what other people are thinking, but to be focused on ourselves, not in a narcissistic way, but in a growth-oriented way, that if I'm going to be the best version of myself, I have to accept and embrace those parts of myself that I'm not necessarily proud of, then we are able to go ahead and tap into our uh, potential. And then we could actually experience the greatness of the day of Yom Kippur, which is Me'en Olam Haba, which actually allows us a little glimpse into what the world to come is going to be like, because we're no longer plagued by Amalek. We're no longer plagued by those things which stand in the way of us being able to uh, realize our potential and be able to tap into the greatness of who we are, the, the things which will allow us to be the best version of ourselves. And that ultimately is the avoda of Yom Kippur. And that's why I think the storyline of paying attention to the characters of how Haman was, was fueled by shame in his response to that. And Ahasuerus was also fueled by shame in what he did in order to, to avoid that element of shame. And how Esther went from a period at the beginning of the story where she was not herself and she wasn't able to be herself. And then when she finally embraced herself, that's when her greatness came out, and that's where the, uh, the salvation for the Jewish people came. And this is a lesson, and this is the goal of all of us, is to learn to, uh, to uh, overcome our shame, to become real, embrace the challenges and the difficulties of our life, so that ultimately we can become the best version of ourselves that, uh, that, that we can. Right, so that is uh, what we have.